Acts chapter 1, we'll read from verse 1. Acts chapter 1 from verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, in white clothing, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together once again. Father, as we continue our studies this night in the book of the Acts, we do pray that you would be with us by the Spirit of whom we hear in these pages, that you would grant that he may take the things that belong to Christ and exalt him in our eyes. Lord, assure us, direct us, instruct us, exhort and spur us, we pray. Glorify your name among us. Save and bless. O King of glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> There's a sense in which Luke is looking from one mountaintop to another, across the valley that lies between. He's looking from the mountaintop of the ascension to the mountaintop of the resurrection, taking account of the, the work that needs to be done. Here, we, uh, verses 9, 10 and 11, we're, we're looking from the peak of ascension across to the peak of the return of Christ and the resurrection of his people. It also happens that we are here on a literal mountaintop, or on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And these things take place immediately after the commission of verses 4 to 8. Luke tells us in verse 9 that when Christ had spoken these things, and there doesn't seem to be any great space of time, as if to say a few weeks after, but having given these instructions with this commission ringing in their ears, while they watched, the Lord Jesus is taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now before the Holy Spirit can be given, the Son must go. And it's important for the disciples to realise and to reckon with this. It's one of the things that they seem to be struggling to get into their comprehension at this time. What you have in these few verses is the going, and then there's a looking, and then there is a coming, uh, a present going, and then this uh, steadfast looking, and then this promised coming. When he had spoken these things... While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, if you were to compare this with what you see at the end of Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, you will see that there he gives us just a touch more information about the posture of the Lord Jesus when he is ascending into glory. 
in verses 50 and 51 of Luke chapter 24, you will see that he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Why is this significant? Why this lifting up of the hands to bless? It is because the Lord Christ ascends into glory in what we should call a priestly pose. If you go back to Leviticus in chapter 9, you'll see this same kind of posture in verses 22 through to 24. Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out and the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces." Having made the sacrifice, Aaron lifts his hand to bless the people. And the whole posture and the gesture are communicating to the people that the high priest now, speaking from God, is granting the favour of God toward the people at God's command. And these apostles, these disciples, they would have been accustomed to that priestly gesture of blessing. So when they see the Lord Christ with his hands outstretched to bless, rising from the earth into the heavenly places, it is speaking to them of the great high priest who is now going into the heavenly sanctuary made without hands, into the very presence of God himself. And isn't that what the writer to the Hebrews delights to emphasize for us? In Hebrews chapter 8, for example, verses 1 and 2. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest, a, a, a Melchizedek high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Or over the page in 9, 11. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And again in chapter 10 and verse 23, sorry, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now again, it seems as if the disciples still need to work some of that out. But in the writer, when the writer to the Hebrews deals with these things, he is catching up that image of Christ ascending as the great high priest into the most holy place. And he's emphasizing that this is the finality which was only shadowed out in the operations of the priests according to the order of Levi. So now you have a priest who is perpetually and eternally, by virtue of his own sacrifice, at the right hand of God, and the sense is that he continues then to pour out the favour that he has purchased by his blood on his people. 
This is the, the image of great confidence. This ought to fill us with joy and delight to think that our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, by virtue of a sacrifice better than that of bulls and goats, is now at the eternal throne of the majesty on high, blessing his people. And it's a divine act he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So it's not just that he sort of drifts up like a feather in reverse. He is taken up. God is at work to lift his son from the earth. He is caught up by God. He is caught up to God. And he is caught up in a cloud which the language of received him seems too passive. This is, this is both the presence of God and a vehicle from God. It's, it's a, a bright cloud, it seems, and by it, Jesus Christ is now conveyed up into the heavens. Why is this significant? Well, again, let me give you just a few references from the Old Testament because all of this is telling us something about what is really happening in Exodus chapter 16. Verse 10, it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So when you think of this cloud, don't even think of one of those rather impressive cumulonimbus numbers that rolls across the sky when a, when a storm is coming in. There is something divine about this cloud. It is speaking of the very presence of God. Or again in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain to which Moses had gone up in order to have dealings with God. God. What does the cloud signify? It signifies the presence of God in his great majesty. Or again in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34 and following when the tabernacle is erected and arranged. The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up, the children of Israel would go on. If the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey until it was. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night. And you'll remember how there are significant moments, you think perhaps especially of, of, of David's dealings with God and then Solomon when the table, temple is consecrated, where the glory of the Lord fills the temple. It's quite possible that this is that glory cloud that we sometimes call the Shekinah, the, the glorious cloud that de designates the very presence of God with his people. And it is then this cloud which catches Christ up. It's, it's hard then to begin describing it, isn't it? And we know what clouds are. You ever seen the glory cloud? Ever seen a cloud so bright, so full of, of intensity, so light perhaps, that you, you cannot even look at it, you cannot draw near? And yet this is what seems now to envelop the Lord Christ and to carry him even higher and higher. Why is this significant? Again, perhaps you know the language of Daniel and chapter 7. I was watching in the night visions... And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." You could compare that with Mark chapter 14 and verse 62. 
I can just turn the page. There we go, 1462. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Why am I showing you all these references? Why are we turning back to the image of the old covenant priest with his hands raised to bless? Why are we looking at these references to the glory cloud which communicates the presence of God? Why are we looking back at Daniel's vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days? Because this is what you should be seeing when you read Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. These are the kinds of images that would have filled, at least to some extent, the minds of the disciples. This is the kind of truth that ought to catch at your soul as you consider Christ rising bodily from the earth and being seized up by this bright cloud into the very presence of God with his hands outstretched to bless. Here is your priest and your king who is going to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here is your representative representative at the throne of God here is the one who has been given an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away who is now seated with his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed and it's important then do you remember how the Lord Jesus said to his disciples it is necessary that I should go this might have been the moment of, of profound distress and it does seem that there was some measure of confusion and, and a sort of a flawed anticipation. But our Lord said to his disciples in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, it is necessary that I go away. Only when I go will the Holy Spirit come. And everything about this moment is communicating, not abandonment, not a sort of a, an absolute departure, as if Christ wants nothing more to do with these people. But it's saying to them, I am going to my father and to your father. I am going as priest and king into the holy place made without hands. I am there for you. I am there on your behalf. I am fulfilling the prophecies that have been made concerning me. It might have seemed painful to the disciples, but oh, how blessed it is to consider that this is the one who, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, is blessing his people in that characteristic gesture of love and favour. Now, my friends, do you believe this about Jesus Christ? This is part of our faith. This is part of uh, what is called the Apostles' Creed. It includes not only the death and resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, but it declares that we believe that he ascended into heaven after 40 days. Do we believe that these things took place? Do we believe that this man rose up from the earth at this point in history with his hands outstretched to bless and that the very presence of God caught him up and enveloped him and he was raised to the throne. Do you take hold of this? Do you hold on to this? Is this what you see when you think of Christ now? There is his going. There is also a looking. He was taken up while they watched and a cloud received him out of their sight. I think we have to say, I bet they were watching. Now, if you could imagine now seeing this glorious figure, for remember, this is the Christ in his glory, and he ascends from the earth. He was standing among them. Now he rises up from them. We're not told precisely where he was when the glory cloud began to envelop him. And they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. And look, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I mean, you're told over and over again what these men were doing and what they were looking at. He went up and they were watching. And as he went up, they were looking steadfastly toward heaven. And then the men who came and stood by them said, Why are you gazing, standing, gazing up into heaven? 
There's a, the whole physicality of the thing shows us you've got a crowd of people who are just doing this, probably with their mouths wide open as Christ ascends into the heavens. Luke's emphasising, without telling us, you know this was real, don't you? He's emphasising, you know this was real, don't you? There's a simplicity to this. There's a clarity. There's a reality. There's a historicity. The physical gestures of Christ and of his disciples. The Lord rising with his hands outstretched, caught up into heaven. The disciples gawping into the skies as the Lord Jesus ascends before their very eyes. My friends, we must never strip the gospel records of their supernaturalism. We are unembarrassed supernaturalists. We believe in the God of wonders. We believe in a God who has made all things and who has power to do all that he wills. Don't tell me I can't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the earth. Bear in mind, this man's already been raised from the dead and glorious. You know, the, the whole thing is miraculous. The whole thing is splendid. The whole thing reeks of divine supernaturalism. And if you're thinking, can this really be? Then what will you do with the promise of our resurrection when the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we who are alive and remain, we're going to be caught up together with them to meet Christ in the air. My friends, if we say, I can't believe Christ rising up, then you've dented your own expectation of your experience at the resurrection. You'll be caught up like this. You will be going up into the skies to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And these disciples are gazing at the Son of God as he rises in his incarnate glory into the very presence of the Almighty Father. And this is part of their work of witness. Look at verse 8 again. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. You're going to testify of what you have seen and heard, you disciples of mine. What will you have to tell people? That we know this Jesus of Nazareth. We heard his words. We saw his mighty works. We know that he died upon the cross. He rose again from the dead on the third day. He appeared to us repeatedly. And after 40 days in which there were these intermittent appearances of the glorified Jesus, we saw him ascend into heaven, his arms outstretched to bless like a priest, there forever to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a history. What a wonder, what a truth to be able to tell. And they're standing there like goldfish, except goldfish normally shut their mouths. <laughs> they're standing there gazing into heaven. Now, so far, I think we should not blame them. I imagine if any of us had seen anything remotely like this, we would be standing there gazing into the skies as well. But there's a danger in this gaze. There's a danger that perhaps now their wonder will give way to fear or that their wonder might uh, cripple their souls and lead them to inactivity. And it's at this very moment that God is again pleased to step in. There are two men. Now, the last time we saw two such men clothed in white garments... Luke recorded it at the beginning of his 24th chapter of his gospel. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments." I think the best way to understand these two men in these white garments is to say that here again are two angels from heaven whom God has sent in his mercy at this precise moment to issue a gentle but straightforward challenge. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
Now, you might have thought that the disciples could have answered, did you just see what we'd seen? But Christ has already sent them. And it seems then that this standing, gazing, gawping needs to be addressed straight away. The, the implication of what the angels say, first of all, you should not have been so surprised. That might have been hard to take, might it not, if you'd just seen the resurrected Son of God rising up into the heavens. But didn't the Lord Jesus tell you he was going to depart? Why are you so shocked by this? Why are you so stunned by something that this same Jesus told you was going to happen? Does that sound harsh to you? Or does it sound like they should have known better? He told you. Why are you shocked? You wonder sometimes what an angel might say to us as we make our way through this world, as we, we seem so surprised by the things that happen to us and happen around us. And, and they might ask us, why are you so shocked? Why are you surprised? I mean, the Bible is full of such things. You were told that this was about to happen. You were, you were warned to expect these things. Why are you so surprised? A second implication of this gentle but direct challenge. It seems as if they may have been looking into heaven because they expected the Lord Jesus to come back down again. But they should not expect further bodily communion at this time. Again, the Lord Christ has said he is going to depart, not abandon. He's not going to leave them friendless and helpless and hopeless, but he himself is going to leave. Why are you looking as if you're waiting for something else to happen immediately? And the third implication of this angelic challenge is why are you standing around waiting when the Lord Jesus has sent you out working? It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Christ says, go, and I will send my Spirit to assist you. Christ then himself departs in order to give the promise of the Father to his disciples. And they're standing there, gawping at the heavens. And the angels, in effect, seem to be saying to them, what are you standing around here for? You know what happens next. You know what's being done. You know why these things have come to pass. You know that Christ said he would go in this way. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. There's the, the going of Christ, yes. And then to, to direct these men now, who are in danger of just gawping and gaping rather than going and serving, this promise of his coming, this Jesus... This very Jesus, this same man who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is what the disciples need. This is the prompt that they require. This is the nudge that is needed for them. First of all, a reminder about the person. This Jesus, this very man and no other, this is the person who is coming again. Yes, you're standing on the mountain of the ascension and there's a space in the valley between but you're looking forward to the day of resurrection and the very same man who has gone up into heaven before your eyes that same man is going to return again in glory the one who has gone is the one who is coming and that is who you fix your hope upon then they emphasize the place <coughs> Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. If you'd asked the disciples after this, where is Jesus? They would have given you the answer. He's gone into heaven. 
That's where he now is. He is in the presence of God himself. He has been caught up into the presence of the divine majesty. And perhaps then they would start to remember the kind of things that the Lord Jesus was praying for them and for others in his so-called high priestly prayer. The glory which you gave me I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. When Christ was praying for his disciples, he prayed that they might be with him where he would be and behold his glory. Where has he gone? Into heaven. Where is he now? In heaven. Where will he come from? From heaven. That's where he is. And when he takes his people to be with him before his return, that's where he takes them to be. And when he comes again to receive his people to himself, that's where he comes from. He is in the physical presence of God himself. Christ is not in orbit, my friends. He's not some kind of celestial satellite zooming around the globe. This glory cloud has taken him into the very presence of God. That is where he is, the lamb in the midst of the throne. And that is where his people must go. And that is where he now resides on our behalf. That person has gone into that place. And here you have then a particular pattern. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, we need to be a little careful here. Because we are not saying that every single detail of Christ's ascension is going to be replicated in reverse at his return. There are some hyper-literal interpretations of some of these things that uh, might give you the impression that, uh, again, you, you'll hear people who load their expectations with a, a degree of detail that the Bible does not provide. With Christ descending again at the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splitting in two. And boy, our imaginations running rampant given the circumstances in the Middle East at this point in time. Remember some of what is said elsewhere. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Christ will come as he went, but whereas the departure was a more private departure, the return is going to be a more public return. You'll see things, for example, that he promised in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. They will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Or again in 21 and verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What is the emphasis of this pattern? What is the point of likeness between the going of Christ into his Father's presence and his coming again for his people? It seems to be primarily with regard to this cloud that having carried him up will carry him back. Yes, this same Jesus, he is going to return in his majesty. And as he was lifted from the earth, so he will be returned to the earth. The same cloud which carried him heavenward is going to carry him back once again. 
I think, again, it's important that we don't somehow diminish our expectation. I think you've probably heard me say before that there are times when I look up into the storm-riddled sky and you get those so-called God beams, the ones that sort of break through the clouds. Uh, and, And it is somehow impressive to think maybe it will be something like that. And Luke's saying, nope, it's not going to be anything like that. Wonderful as that may be, there is going to be this divine revelation. The glory of God will disgorge the risen Jesus. And with the same splendor that he rose, and now in universal revelation, he will descend again to his people. And that's the prospect, that's the certainty, that's the confidence. He will come as he went. He is coming again, and there need be no doubt about it. Can you imagine what confidence this gave the disciples as they saw Jesus rising bodily into the heavens? And the angels say to them, and he's coming again bodily in the clouds with glory and every eye will see him. What confidence this gives them. This one single definite event. That is what we're waiting for. Jesus Christ is coming again. There is no flood of predictive detail here. I think we should beware of those We've got a, a list of graphs and charts to plot every moment of every second, of every day, of every uh, whatever the period would be of, of this must happen first and then this is going to take place uh, and then this will happen simultaneously with that after these things are going to take place and then you'll see that, then these things will... You know what the angel said to the disciples, don't you? He is coming again. That's what you need to remember that as he went, so he will return. Do not get bogged down in and fixated with detail that God himself has not chosen to make clear to us. They're saying, in effect, look from this mountain to the next. There's a valley in between. You're living now in the last days between the first coming and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you live through these days in the light of the fact that the very same Jesus who went into the presence of his Father will soon come again in his glory to receive his people to himself. Brothers and sisters, these things we need to remember as we make our way through the valley. We need to have a firm grip upon the who and the where of what we call technically the session of Jesus Christ. And session there means the present reign of Jesus. He is seated at the right hand of God now, this same man with God. Your prophet, priest and king is in heaven on your behalf. There is a man, a real man. There is a man as real as Adam who now dwells with God and has gone there on our behalf. A man with a humanity like yours sits on the throne of heaven on your behalf. How that lifts a load from our hearts and minds. How that should transform the way that we look at the world around us. My saviour, truly, really, historically, substantially, he is with his father and with mine. A saviour supreme, worthy to be trusted and adored by all. If you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that when we preach... When we speak to you, we're not asking you to believe in an idea. We don't want you to fixate upon a dream. These disciples didn't just carry Jesus with them in their hearts. These men knew that the Christ who died had risen again. And the risen Christ had gone into heaven 
there to prepare a place for them. That was his language. I'm going to the throne by way of the cross and I'm going to make sure that there is a place for you. Remember who we're talking about and remember where he is. And when it seems as if things are going wrong, when it seems as if things are becoming difficult, either individually or congregationally or almost universally in terms of the life of the church, when things get dark, when things become painful, when it seems that there is little progress, when it feels as if the valley is particularly deep and gloomy, remember that we are between the two mountain peaks of the ascension and the return in glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. There's a physicality, there's a historicity about these things that we need to grasp. If we don't have that sense, then we will have a, a, a faded and a diluted Christianity. Our faith is in the risen man, Jesus of Nazareth. The Lamb of God has been enthroned and he is reigning on behalf of his people. He is blessing from God. He is watching over us and guiding and guarding us. And he then, my friend, is a man that you can trust with your soul. Because he's coming back. He's coming back for his people. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. You hear the language, don't you? In John's testimony at the beginning of his first letter, that which our eyes have seen, which our hands have handled, that's what we're communicating to you, that your joy may be full as our joy may be full. Don't dilute the supernaturalism. Don't lose sight of the physical realities and the historicity of these events. And then in connection with that, remember that we're not to be gazing, but we ought to be going. It is easy in these days, is it not, to get caught up in a kind of troubled waiting rather than to engage in an eager working. Again, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 10. Watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Easy, isn't it, to get, oh, what about, when are they going to deliver up, us up to councils? <clears throat> How badly will we beaten, be beaten in the synagogues? Which rulers and kings will we be brought before? What kind of testimony will we need to bear to them? The gospel must be preached to all the nations. You may have been spared some of the, frankly, wild speculation that is associated with the terrible events that are happening in Jerusalem and in Israel and in Gaza, the Gaza Strip at this time. There is so much confusion, so much obsession with the, the spiritual meaning of some of these things. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. These will be days in which you are likely to be bombarded. You only need to go to a couple of so-called Christian YouTube sites or Twitter pages. You can dig out your old dusty books and blow the dust off and people will have all kinds of notions about what this means and how you should respond. There'll be false prophets who'll make a mint of people who will believe whatever they're being told under these circumstances. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In essence, that's what a lot of people are asking right now. Is this it? Is this the restoration of the Jews? Is this, is this the, the time when Christ, is this the tribulation? Is this the, where, how does this fit in? What did the angels say to the apostles? 
Why are you standing gazing up into heaven? Why are you obsessed with these so-called signs and wonders? Why are you trying to trace out all the details of the divine plan and purpose which the Father has not put out of his own authority? What are the angels saying to these disciples? Didn't he tell you to go? Hasn't he told you that in the valley between this first and this second coming, this rising up into the presence of his Father and this coming again with the glory of God upon him, that in that space the gospel must be preached to all the nations? My friends, we live in those same last days. We may be living in one of the dangerous seasons in the last days, when it seems like a rampant tide of godlessness sweeps across parts or even the whole of the globe. We're living in difficult days. We're living in dangerous days. We don't know how far some of these ripples will spread across the world of what's taking place in, in Ukraine and in the Middle East and wherever else it may be. And who knows what's to happen next and what wars and rumours of wars will still sweep across the globe in the next few days. What earthquakes and floods will yet come upon us? What cosmic contractions will yet shake the world before the coming of Jesus Christ? My short answer would be, I don't know. But I do know this, that the gospel must be preached to all the nations. I do know this, that we are to carry on the commission which Christ gave to his first disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That as we go, we are to make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all the things that Christ has commanded us, confident that he himself is with us by his Spirit, even to the end of the age. I would urge you in these days not to lose sight of the second mountaintop, not to lose sight of the work in the valley, not to lose sight of the certainties and the realities which Christ has given us to know. And there's help here, and there's hope too, because the Son must go that the Spirit might be given. John chapter 14. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to my father, for my father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And later on in that same declaration, in chapter 16, I tell you the truth, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Because he has gone. The helper has come. Because the Son has ascended, the Spirit has been poured out. My friends, as the people of God, we now have Him by whom we are able to live to the praise of the glory of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We're not abandoned in the valley, the helper has been given. We have, I don't want to say everything we need, because I want to emphasise the personality of the Holy Spirit. 
we have him in whom all things needful are provided to us from God the Father and from his Son, Jesus Christ. We have present help and we have future hope. Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. Again in John chapter 14, as the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where is your life? According to Colossians chapter 3, it is hidden with Christ in God. According to Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, Christian, you are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is your spiritual home. That is your eternal destination. His life is now your life. And he has promised you help for the present and hope for the future. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be in heaven with Christ when you die unless he returns first? Will you, like the apostle, depart to be with Christ, which is far better? Will you be in the new heavens and the new earth when he comes again in his glory? If you're alive and remain, will you be caught up together with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus? So that as they burst from their graves with bodies now glorious, reunited with their souls, we caught up together with them to meet the returning Christ as the, the welcoming committee, if I can put it in those terms. This same Jesus coming as he went to meet his people in the air and to take us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't stand gazing. Get going. It is our privilege in the valley between these two mountain peaks to work for Christ. And when our work is done, to go in our spirits to be with Christ. And when he returns, to rise up glorious like him, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be forever with the Lord. This is what the disciples saw. And this is what the disciples heard. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This very Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, he will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And this is the help and the hope of the people of God today. Amen.